It's in the coach's best interest to have a successful player. Like they're not in it to be against you <laughs> as a player, you know? Uh, and so, you know, it's opening your mind, being open to uh, some constructive talk and, and not necessarily criticism, but just change to who you are as a player. Be open to it. Understand that, that the coach has 19 other players as well, that they have to mold into a team and everybody's important. And so um, that is the one big thing with the with this generation is what is it what's in it for me and only me um, and there's nothing wrong with that but you know at the end of the day uh, you have to understand that the coach has 19 or 20 other people that they're trying to do the same thing with and at some point you have to give a little bit in order to to fit into that team team environment that was Mike Needham former NHLer, world junior gold medalist, Stanley Cup champion and current head of development for OHA, uh, Okanagan of the CSSHL. And you are listening to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Padone. Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Podolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Podolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for 1,000. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there, welcome back, or welcome to the Up My Hockey podcast with Jason Podolan. I'm your host, Jason Podolan. And today we have on an accomplished player in his own right by the name of Mike Needham. Mike Needham was a Western Western Canadian hockey player growing up who uh, participated in the major junior route, uh, ended up playing for the Kamloops Blazers. At the time, it was just a wagon of a team, really was a, was a professional player manufacturing a process there if you played for the Blazers. Uh, he was there by the, uh, with the names like Rob Brown and Greg Hoggood and Scott Niedemeyer and Dave Shazowski and Mark Retchy and guys like that. Also the coaching um, standpoint too. Same thing, like the direct direct route to pro and to the NHL routes and you know he he was coached by Kent Hitchcock and uh, Don Hay was was underneath him and so the Blazer organization for a long time well not that it's not now but I mean it was just powerhouse after powerhouse for years and years and years and he was a part of that uh, part of that juggernaut for for four seasons before getting drafted by uh, by the Pittsburgh Penguins he was also a world junior gold medalist uh, in a year that I that I mentioned in the interview. Like there was crazy names at the at the uh, at the tournament the year that that Mike played. Uh, names like Sergei Zuboff and Tony Amante and Eric Lindros and Pavel Bure and Yarmir Jager and Matt Sundin and Nicholas Lidstrom. Like that's nuts. It's crazy who was at that tournament. So we talk about that during during our uh, conversation and. And also about Mike's, you know, uh, journey into pro hockey himself, from having such an accomplished junior season to uh, to being a healthy scratch as his first year pro, uh, to getting called up by the Pittsburgh Penguins and uh, and winning the Stanley Cup with them in 1992, and with players like Mario Lemieux and and uh, Jagger again, and Ron Francis, and you know Larry Murphy, and Tom Brasso, and anyways, guys like that. So we, we cover we cover Mike's career, but we also bounce around a lot just between uh, the philosophy 
of hockey and and what it takes to play in today's uh, day and age. We talk about being being an athlete and how much time we should be on the ice and um, lots of lots of really great co- uh, topics. I mean, M- Mike now is the head of development for Okanagan Hockey Academy of the of the Canadian Sports School uh, Hockey League, which is. Uh, a league that, as Mike said, mentions in this interview, that places roughly 40% of the uh, WHL draft comes from the CSSHL. So the draft, if you're an American listener out here uh, for Major Junior, uh, the Western Hockey League, is a bantam draft. So it's the only draft that happens for 14-year-old players uh, in the Major Junior circuit. Uh, the OHL drafts first-year midgets, 15-year-olds, and the QMJHL also drafts uh, 15-year-olds. So the, the, the WHL, by comparison, drafts 14-year-olds. This is second-year bantam. So it really has an influx of players leaving home or going to different programs at a younger age, especially some of the top top tier kids at, at, at that age bracket in hopes of higher competition of more scouts watching them and, and of, in hopes of being, uh, you know, drafted by a WHL team for those who are, who are interested in the major junior route. So Mike has a big job there at OHA with the, being the head of development. He is, he is responsible for the development of the players that are there. Uh, and he's also responsible for the, uh, the prospecting, you know, the, the, the recruitment of players, you know, there, there is, uh, which actually now reflecting on that, I'm, I'm, I kind of regret not actually covering that because I think for a lot of families, there is a question mark. I mean, how do we play on a U15 prep team or how do we play on a U15 uh, varsity team? And, uh, and there is, there is some, some prospecting that goes on, you know, like for instance, Mike get, sent me an email. I have an 09 son who's going to be a second year Bantam next year and who has aspirations of, of getting drafted in the WHL draft. And, and Mike saw my son play at a tournament and he reached out and, uh, and wanted to have a conversation about what it would look like for the potential of Hudson to join, uh, to join the program next year. So there is some of that that goes on uh, at the SHL level where, where parents or families will, will receive a phone call or will receive an email about interest from the program and and then to see if there is any synergies there with with interest uh, back from the families. Uh, there are also showcases where uh, where these teams will hold you know tryout camps that you can come and and uh, and audition for a spot on the team. And there's also the graduation process where uh, they try to have first year players. Uh, meaning first-year Bantams. If you're involved in the program, they try and graduate them on into the prep program, which uh, which sounds a little bit uh, different for, for you listening, my American listeners, because varsity here is actually like the understudy uh, group to the prep group. So they call the top tier out here in, in Western Canada the, the prep. U15 prep is, is the top team and the U15 varsity team would be the uh, would be the understudy team. Uh, and that goes the, the, the same for U17 and U18 when you graduate that uh, that varsity is, is the, uh, the lower team. So anyways, we, we didn't cover much of that recruitment process, but Mike is responsible for assessing talent. Mike is responsible for bringing uh, players in, making those phone calls, making sure... Uh, you know, parents are comfortable and players are comfortable, and, and and once players arrive, he is he is responsible for the programming that happens while while they're there. So we do cover uh, that system. We do cover uh, development. You know, it, it's something that that's been in Mike's wheelhouse. He's also been an assistant coach with uh, at the major junior level. So obviously has a, a wide breadth of experience in, in, in a lot of factors of uh, of hockey, uh, the, the process of of being your best and and what that looks like in a, in a team environment. So lots of great topics. 
uh, here today. We also talk about the modern day athlete and their ability to you know handle resilience. So there's definitely some some mindset components that that we discuss here today, and and some philosophical factors just around hockey development. So I know you're going to like this one. Um, awesome to have uh, somebody like Mike come on. Um, the CHL CSSHL is is uh is definitely a consideration for a lot of players out here in in, in western canada for sure and even western united states uh, and it's kind of a similar a program to some of the prep schools that are out uh, there on the eastern seaboard so for those of you who are american uh, that are can, you know that are know of the the shattuck st mary's of the world and and programs like that 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 would be what an oha is like out here for in western canada so a uh, similar style you go to school uh while you're also playing hockey uh, hockey is a is is the reason why these why these players come but also academics is a, is a big portion of it too and uh your housing and sometimes your boarding is taking care of a different program so that's what oha is and that's what mike is involved in and uh and again coming from somebody who's been around the game his whole life uh it was awesome to have 90 minutes to to have a discussion with him so i give you without any further ado my conversation with mike needham all right here we are with mr mike needham head of player development for the okanagan hockey academy thanks for joining the podcast mike you're welcome. Nice to nice to be here. <laughs> yeah, awesome, awesome. Well, anytime we have a chance to chat some hockey, uh, I, I enjoy it. Any chance I have a, a, an opportunity to talk to somebody who played with the magnificent one, uh, I got to take the opportunity to do it. So, uh, looking forward to chatting about Mario and your time in Pittsburgh. But once again, thanks for thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. Um, well, let's start. I, I love talking hockey. I mean, you're an ex uh, NHLer yourself. Uh, very accomplished junior career. Uh, how did it all start with you? We'll take it back to the roots, and that's usually the best place to start because I think for both of our audiences, you know, they're on their journey, right? They're going through the minor hockey thing. They're trying to find what works and, and where's the best spot for them. So what was that like for you when you were growing up, and at what point did you maybe think that you wanted to be a hockey player? You know, I think, well, I first of all, grew up in Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta, uh, a little town outside of Edmonton, and um you know, fortunate to play with a group of players there. Um, you know, we had uh, four other professional players came off the same peewee and Bantam team. So we were a strong group. Um, and so, you know, kind of growing up with some good coaching at the minor hockey level, back in a day where ice time was never an issue. You know, there wasn't a lot of teams around. We were on the ice a lot. Um, we had the outdoor rink opportunities all the time. And it was just, that was, hockey was sort of life. Uh, what we did for for fun, you know, it was not only, a, it, you know, the sport of hockey and the, and the organized stuff, but it was, uh, we did a lot of time, spent a lot of time with stick and puck on the ice. So, um, you know, it was, it just became part of my life. Um, grew up there, played through my uh, Bantam hockey uh, time there. And then um, it was back in the days when the Western Hockey League would list players. Uh, there was no long, there wasn't the draft at that time. So I was listed by different Western League teams and, um, you know, eventually found myself on Kamloops Blazers list. Um, right after Bantam, I went from Bantam, I, I missed, skipped midget altogether and went to the uh, uh, Junior A Fort Saskatchewan Traders at the time, uh, spent a year and a half there. And then in my 16 year old season, went to Kamloops, um, had, a, had a wonderful time, wonderful uh, career with a very, very strong Kamloops Blazers organization at the time. Um, you know, we competed every year for Western League Championships. Uh, my last year there, it was 1989-90. Uh, 
Uh, we won the Western Hockey League and went to the Memorial Cup where we fell a little bit short there. Um, but I had a, a pretty pretty wonderful season there, you know, obviously going to the Western Hockey League, but uh, making the Canadian World Junior Team um, in 19, and winning a gold medal with Canada for in the 1990 World Junior. So um, that year was, you know, pretty special. A lot of winning, um, yeah. lots of good <laughs> things going on. Uh, had been drafted the previous summer with the Penguins, Pittsburgh Penguins, as you mentioned. Um, signed my first pro contract that year as well uh, in the Memorial Cup, right at the right at the table at the Memorial Cup uh, pregame dinner. <laughs> so that was kind of cool. Um, and then, yeah, then uh, you know that was my 1920 season. Uh, didn't go back to, to junior as an overage and turned pro the very next year. Uh, you know, with the Muskegon Lumberjacks, which at the time in the International Hockey League, the IHL was the Penguins <laughs> affiliate. So. Um, spent a couple of uh, really good seasons where I learned, you know, the pro a little bit about the pro game. Had some great, uh, great mentors, uh, guys like Dave McKaylick and Jock Callender, sort of iconic names from from that era uh, in the IHL. I think Jock Callender may be the all-time leading scorer or was at one time in the IHL, um, and you know, had a chance to play with guys like that. Kind of taught me, you know, a little bit about how to be a professional. And then was fortunate enough, uh, 1991, 92 season, um, it was a time where Penguins were in the, in the uh, Stanley Cup playoffs. And uh, so were we, we were down actually in the IHL league finals, just getting ready to, to play the first game. And Mario Lemieux, uh, Bob Erie, and um, one other player I forget right now were injured all in the same game playing the Rangers in, in the second round. So, uh, as I, the, the three guys or two other guys I just mentioned, Jock Callender, Dave McCulloch, and myself, all got called up to the Stanley Cup playoff run, um, you know, 91-92. So we were able to get in, play some games, uh, contributed. I scored a goal in my second NHL game um, and, you know, went on to uh, that year win the second Stanley Cup or be a part of the second Stanley Cup run with the Penguins. Um, you know, it was an incredible, you know, sort of run. Um we, without Lemieux for a lot of it too. You know, that was one thing people kind of forget. He was gone for a number of games uh, with a broken hand. And, um, you know, it was, it was pretty cool. I think it showed uh, the depth in the Penguins system to be able to bring a whole lineup that could contribute. Um, and then just the depth of team. Players like Ron Francis and, um, you know, Rick Tockett, uh, Kevin Stevens, you know, all just incredible players. Um, Larry Murphy on the back end, Tom Barrasso and that. Uh, so some some wonderful Hall of Fame sort of names there that uh, had a chance to to come in and contribute and play with. Yeah, wow. I mean, for sure. And I definitely want to get to. We're gonna have to go back now, and I'm gonna have to talk <laughs> about all that because because uh, there is little pieces there that I want to ch definitely chat sure. about. Maybe like the first the first part that I found interesting is um, is just that puck and stick time you were talking about. I think that was the first thing that kind of stuck to me, and I know for me. The, and I'm, I'm you mean, time flies, right? And I don't remember exactly how many practices we had a week, you know, when I was growing up. I don't remember how many games we would play in a season, but it did seem like at some point that I was out on the lake and I was, you know, I, I had the rink in the garage. And, you know, it just seemed like there was more of that happening, at least then, than it is for my kids now. You know, like it just seems that they're so busy that there's not really much time to do that. Um, 
and even if you are finding the ice, it seems like it's more programmed ice, you know, like it's always with a whistle or it's always, you know, working on your skating or kind of, you know, like this professional approach at like from eight on kind of a, is, uh, is that what you, I mean, I, I, how do you remember that? Like your childhood, like, was there, like, there's definitely was just a lot of time there. And, and how do you contrast that to what you see today? Yeah, that's, those are great points, Jason. You know, we, when I was a kid growing up, there was a lot of unorganized, just go and throw a puck on the ice. I remember at, you know, eight, nine years old, out on the ice with 14, 15-year-old kids that are, you know, guys that I actually idolized, obviously. They're older playing at the tri uh, AAA levels uh, there. And I had to try to compete with them. You know, if I wanted to touch the puck, I had to be able to, to do some things. So you work and refine things pretty quickly. And it's, there isn't, there isn't any structure to it. Um, those times, I, I really remember very fondly. You know, it was it was just fun. It was it was a great time, and and it was it was the days where I was fortunate too. I, I literally lived a block away from the outdoor rink. I could put my skates on on the back door and walk over with my skates on to the rink, um, and then just play for hours and hours. My parents really didn't worry about me because they knew exactly where I was. First and foremost, I was on the rink. And, uh, you know, we would race home from a game. We'd play a game in the morning, race home, get our stuff back on the rink. And so, um, you know, just that unorganized, uh, you know, impromptu, making plays, learning how to, you know, play against bigger players, you know, protect pucks, all of those things that, uh, yeah, you can do with structure. I mean, part of my role, as you mentioned, is, is player development and skill development. Um, but I still go back a lot, even today, I go back to giving my athletes time just to have fun, just to play a small area game. I believe that's a big part of, you know, creating skill within and there's things that stick with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I try and do that with my programs too. I got some stuff on the ground stuff here in Vernon and, and I, I didn't start that way, but now I have progressed that way that I actually do plan in. Like I have, for both my summer camps and my spring teams, like I have a day that's dedicated just to three on three where I'm yep. like legitimately not coaching, you know, I'll, I'll maybe blow the whistle or whatever to have them change or whatever, but they're just playing, you know, and I obviously I want them to work and, and, and compete, but I mean, just play. I mean, I'm not coaching, I'm not telling anything. And, and I do think that there's, I don't know, like there's value there in the fact that, yeah, you, I, I think you're building some hockey IQ in that, but I think more importantly, I think that you're building like the passion. I mean, you, you kept using the word fun and I think, they're genuine is there's there's some type of grassroots fun and just involved in playing you know and not being judged necessarily and not being you know looked at and it, so i i just want to especially at the age groups i'm working with now which is usually like u15 and under um you know like i just i really want to promote that that passion and i think for anyone that i've had in this episode uh, on the podcast and we're over 100 now like that seems to be like such a framework of success is just absolutely loving it right and and i and i think that has to happen uh, at the younger ages because it's going to stick with you later on i would agree you know we uh, we're fortunate right now to have a have a couple of kids playing in the program on our u15 prep team that grew up that way you know we you, you talk to their families um they're wonderful players talented going to be very very high picks in the western league draft this year but they grew up that way they grew up playing the game you know just playing um and not organized either you know just going out there they're also the same ones that are shooting a thousand pucks in the backyard breaking windows and one mom telling me how many windows the one boy has broken in his <laughs> in his short time here um 
And it, it, it is, that's passion. And, and ultimately, you know, in the business that I'm in, I talk about uh, the Okanagan Hockey Academy. That is a big, big part of the kids that come into the program is having the passion to play the game. You can't force a kid. You can't manufacture the passion. They have to have it from within or it honestly really doesn't work. Um, you know, they will fall short at some point. Those kids that have that passion, that want to play, that love it, that just live, you know, live and breathe it are the ones that are going to be successful. Yeah. Yeah, well, not only do you get better, of course, you know, I think that there's there's that uh, there's that end product of passion because to your point about the shooting the pucks or like it's not work, right? It's like it's what you just want to do. So I mean, you're you're gonna the the, the skill the skill set's going to improve. But the other one that I think is is where it gets maybe not as much recognition as how it serves you is when it comes to the adversity because it's not easy. Right. At some point, it's not easy. And it's going to be not easy quite a few times. And the question is, like, how many times do you keep showing up and how do you keep keep up with that passion? And, uh, and I think that's where it serves, guys, especially when we're talking about, you know, the trajectory of getting paid to play the game or getting, you know, getting your school paid for to play the game. Like there's there's some things that there's going to be some bumps in the road. And, and passion is a is a pretty big key of, of making those things happen. Yeah, you know, that is an absolute there. You have to. You have to enjoy what you're doing. You got to love it. It's got to have it can almost be ingrained in uh, a big part of your life. And, you know, I, I think you, you made mention uh, a little bit about, you know, kids of today, kids now kind of growing up. There are so many distractions. I mean, there truly are. It's it's the social media, the phones, the uh, gaming. There's, you know, those are just a couple of things that keep kids, you know, in the home. Um, away from doing things outside like like hockey or road hockey or, you know, on ice stuff. Um, so there are so many distractions, skiing in our area, obviously. Um, and so, you know, that is, to me, that, that, that's also a, a little bit of a problem. Um, you know, kids that are passionate about the sport, you, you don't see them on those things. You see them out there. They The first thing that they wake up thinking of is hockey and having fun and getting out with their the sticks like that that's just what it's all about and um you know ultimately the you talk to any nhler you know as they're breaking in turning pro they're going to say a lot of the same things i am about that passion they had it as a young person and it's propelled them to where they are at this point you mentioned that outdoor time and and uh i mean maybe <clears throat> maybe i'm jumping the gun here because we are we are going to talk about you at oha and what you're doing there and you know the the hockey academy system and really i mean what a force it's it's become in, in, in the hockey world these days uh but one thing where i think i would struggle from a development perspective uh and especially with the families i mean that want hockey and, and i don't know what your philosophy is uh but I love being able to intermix like athletics with hockey, you know, like to allow these kids to do other things, not only because I think it helps them mentally and I think it helps them physically, but it also helps them on the ice because of the the structure and the strategy of other sports. I mean, that, that, that can overlay with hockey. I think it, it allows a greater depth of, of knowledge too. Um, how do you fit that in with today's athlete, even with what you do? Like, do you try and uh, leave room for, for other sports and other things to play? You know what, the great point, Jason, and yes, we do, uh, I do, I encourage it. Um, first and foremost, when you're away from the game for an extended period of time, an extended period is, you know, nowadays might be a month, say. You know, yeah. you get off the ice for a month, maybe six weeks. Um, you're passionate about getting, you want to get back on the ice. You, you, you miss the game. Extremely important. You know, if it becomes a job because it's 24-7, 
you know, 365 days a week that you're working on hockey only, it can, it can kind of wear on you and, and, and be, be that feeling of a weight on your back. Um, so yeah, getting away from the game, number one, for a little while breeds, you know, passion to get back and do some more. Um, also, you know, what, what I found is, is athleticism, being, a, being an athlete, um, hand-eye coordination, uh, you know, just, just athletic running and, and change of, uh, change of direction, those types of things that, you know, are in a lot of different sports, soccer, lacrosse, for examples, that are, are real good crossovers for hockey. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it just, it builds and breeds the better athlete, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, not even to mention, as you know, you, you brought up the strategy that goes along with, with the, the game like lacrosse, it's very similar to hockey. Um, and a little bit different in, in soccer, but still two on, creating two-on-ones, moving the ball around, uh, yeah. moving to open space, and that's the game of hockey. And so, yeah, there are lots of, lots of parallels. Um, but the biggest thing for me, honestly, the biggest thing I think is just uh, getting away from hockey breeds the passion to come back. You really want to be back on the ice, you know, while creating, you know, an athletic base that's super important. Yeah, I think that, I, I mean, I don't want to get into the, the neuroscience of it because I'm no neuroscientist, but like even the connections, like the, you know, like the, the way the way you acquire skill, it, the brain needs some time to put those things together too, right? And, and everyone does manufacture that differently, but you can shoot a thousand pucks. But if you honestly do that every day, like it's hard for the brain to actually wire. You need to step away and let it do its work without you mm-hmm. being there. And then you come back and all of a sudden... You sometimes you see your biggest improvements after stepping away for a little while. It's almost like anything creative or anything skill based, right? Like you're writing a book, you have to step away to come back to write again, you know, and all of a sudden things start to click. So I, I think um, sometimes parents, I think that's where parental involvement needs to get in. If you have the kid that's like super keen and my kids are super keen, like sometimes I have to tell no, like we're not going on the ice today and like <laughs> I'm the bad guy, right? Like, yeah. which is fine. Yeah. But I think I got to protect their best interests sometimes, right? When it comes to that. And and I know that I'm in a fortunate spot and I do, I, I mean, I am grateful for that because I love kids to be passionate about something, right? It doesn't have to be hockey. I know I'm a mm-hmm. hockey guy, but just the fact that they love something, they want to do it, that's that's completely fantastic. I'd rather be on that side of the fence than, you know, cheering them on to get off the couch, you know, like find something that you love. Yeah. Um, but there is a balance there, I think, too, you know, and that was the, that was kind of what I was asking too about the programming aspect of, of, uh, of, of maybe the CSHL because, mm-hmm. um I talked to, well, for instance, I'll just maybe start with, I have this thing on Wednesday called, uh, I just call it my elementary academy, UMH Wednesday, my hockey academy. And so parents choose to take their kids out of elementary school. So grade sixes and sevens is usually who, I, who I'm working with. And I get them Wednesday morning. So we start around 7.30 and they go back to school uh, around noon. And it's based around hockey because they're hockey players and they're passionate about hockey. So we get 90 minutes on the ice that, you know, I, I break up into skill development and some drills mm-hmm. and then some play at the end. Uh, but then I also introduce them to two other activities, like whether it, and it's really like as diverse as I can have it. We've done football, soccer, ultimate frisbee, uh, jujitsu, uh, rock climbing. We're doing pickleball right now. We go to the pool, you know, like rugby we've done like anyways like it's across the board and we do it for like a six-week segment and then we rotate so um just like to align my philosophy with what i think these kids should be exposed to plus i have my own grievances about what the uh local school system does with pe now and uh and i think it's it's not really it's more uh you know get out and play tag instead of actually learning learning a sport but anyway so like that's sort of what I created just because I thought that there was a hole there. And I thought that, you know, it's better for hockey players to actually learn. Now with you at the, at the academy system, 
I know you probably want have players and families that like the more ice, the better, right? Like the more you're on the ice and I want to know how much ice and I want to know how many practices where maybe there might be an internal part of you saying, well, geez, I'd rather have these kids go out in the soccer pitch today, you know, and like, and, and maybe have them do some of that stuff. Like, do you have any, do you have a hard time trying to balance or fit in uh, opportunities to do other sports? There is, there is that element. I mean, parents look at how much ice a week and it's a big part of obviously drawing people to an academy setting. Um, and yeah, we do have that. We have to balance it for sure. Um, but we, you know, we have a luxury with the number of ice times, uh, built-in rest periods after you know being busy with gameplay and all that kind of stuff. Those are the perfect days on a we would call a rest day uh, to get them doing something different. Um, we talked about ultimate frisbee. We've we did lots of uh, 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 flag football things like that. Um, you know, we do play uh, some lacrosse. I just anything to just be a little bit, you know, get away from the game, but still be athletic. Um, and so, yeah, lots of that stuff, even in our, we, we kind of switch over and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, but we switch over in the springtime when our competition sort of season ends to a lot more of building athleticism. And that's, mm. you know, a big part of what we'll do. We'll have soccer games and, and things like that that go on. And so, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of a shift definitely to get, uh, get those, even basketball, things like that for the hand-eye and, you know, dribbling, dribbling a ball, most of them catching, playing baseball, whatever you can think of, we, we try to do. Um, and, uh, you know, just kind of implement that into that uh, that schedule. There's still ice time, sure, during the week, yeah. but they will have something like that. And it, I believe it pays dividends that that's something that, um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of the programs out there, when it's just strictly hockey related, I think they miss the boat a bit on yeah. Yeah, good for you. Sounds like you're a little bit of a hybrid because I talked to the uh, director of Shawnigan Lake there and, and he said that's it's something that he loves about the program, that when the competition season ends, like they actually have to do something different right. there. Like they have yeah. to go to be rowing or they have to do golf or they have to yeah. do whatever. And um, and he thinks it's awesome, but he also said there's a lot of like hardcore hockey parents that think it's the worst thing about it and they lose people because of that, you know? So it sounds like you're kind of doing a little bit of both, which maybe is, is a nice little mix there. They still stay on the ice a little bit, but they're also uh, having the opportunity to go explore other, other um, you know, uh, sports and stuff. So that's, that's, that's great. There's one, it's funny too, because like this generation is now like starting to be in the NHL, like these pros that have done the essentially 11 month, 12 month a year hockey thing their entire lives. And uh, I was talking with a trainer from the uh, from the senators, and and he was he was actually aghast at like how unathletic these guys are. Like they go out in the field and and throw a football around. He says half the team can't even throw. Like it's crazy. Like to him, yeah. they think that these are world class, you know, athletes or hockey players that just haven't been exposed to really anything else. So uh, that makes me think about injuries now too, and how guys get injured and different things. Like, I don't know if there is any correlation, but it it strikes me as pretty crazy that a that an NHL player can't throw a football. But uh, I think that's just the way the development system has, has worked for these guys growing up. Yeah, you, you're absolutely right with that. I, you know, I spent a few years with the Kamloops Blazers coaching, um, and I remember some of our athletes, you know, 16, 17-year-olds coming in uh, and, and again, not being able to do just fundamental things, you know, play a little uh, uh, soccer, kick a ball around. I mean, they look like they're a giraffe out there that's you know, <laughs> his first, the first time he's been running, right? And so, yeah, it, it is. It's a little bit, it's distressing almost. But I think, you know, I think that that you talk about injury injuries and all that kind of stuff. I know in, in the goalie setting, I mean, it's it's they're, they're starting to find for sure uh, the amount of goalie sessions that a 
that a young fellow would be on the ice for is creating hip issues in their early, you know, early 20s or even before that. You're seeing a lot of these goalies undergoing, you know, uh, surgeries to correct those problems. And it's just overtraining. Um, and so, yeah, it has to be in a similar, you know, I'd have to think and it'd be similar uh, to a position player that's on the ice and just con consistently doing the same thing. Um, and so I believe in it. I know I've, I've, my son uh, was a good player, um, you know, went on to play in the Western Hockey League and uh, then went on to uh, a, a good uh, CIS career and is getting his law degree right now. Um, he did a lot of different things as a young athlete, a young person. Like he played soccer, played baseball, um, lots of different things outside. And he is an ex exceptionally good athlete. Um, and I think that translate in, translates to the hockey player too. So, um, you know what, it can work. It, it's, there's proof there that, you know, 12 months of the year being a hockey training type family, it works. Um, but there are some detriment, I think, to the body potentially that uh, I think we're going to start to see a little bit more of as uh, – as we go in and their, their careers start to yeah. start to move through. I guess I only, I mean, I do like the topic and I do like sharing kind of some of these different opinions about that, just because I think there's a lot of people that maybe aren't as well versed in it as you or as I just from being players even, you know, so you have these parents now that have these, these athletes that love hockey and are good at it. And they feel like they have to keep up with the Joneses. Like, and there's always yeah. another tournament. There's always another ice session, you know, and if they don't do it, right? Heaven forbid that he might fall behind. And I just like, I just like putting a spotlight on the idea that sometimes it's actually exactly what you need and you're not falling behind, you know, like, so like just to take a breath and just relax and we don't have to chase every last ice time. Um, if you don't think it's right, I mean, I think go with your gut on that and, and, you know, take what you need sometimes. And then I just want that message to get out because I don't think it has to be and all the time thing, if it's not right for your family or if it feels like not right for your kids. So I guess that's really my motivation behind that, behind that mm -hmm. discussion is that I, I hear these, these families sometimes struggling with, you know, what do I do and where do I stop and, you know, all this kind of stuff. So um, to your point, like, yes, it does work for some players like to go all the time. It also works for other players not to. So I don't think there's any like one right path and you got to find the path for you. All right. Just going to take a short break from the conversation with Mike Needham. To remind you that Up My Hockey is more than just a podcast. Up My Hockey is also a service uh, for mental performance gains. Uh, gains that can be seen off the ice, gains that can be seen on the ice. And this is for players or teams or associations um, with members that want to be better, that you want to give them the mental fitness tools required to be their best and to be able to be empowered uh, on their own journeys, whether that be as an individual player or as a team. And one of the things that I haven't done enough of on this podcast is to share some of the success stories and some of the testimonials for those people that I have worked with or the teams that I have worked with. Uh, it's always nice to hear from others who have done something that you don't know anything about, right? Like, so if you're unfamiliar with what the Peak Potential Program is or what mental performance training can be or what mindset training can be and what it looks like with me, uh, you can hear from somebody uh, who's gone through it, somebody that's uh, you know either done it themselves or has been a participant in it, like Tyler Shattuck, who I'm going to talk about here in, in a second, and uh, hear what they have to say about the program. And, and maybe that will be the motivation uh, that you need uh, to say, yes, this is something that's important to you and is important to your, your association or to your team. And Tyler Shattuck is the head coach of the Salmon Arm Silverbacks, and, and the Salmon Arm Silverbacks hired me as their mental performance coach this year. Last year, I was working with them as well last season and uh 
uh, and they took my peak potential uh, course, and I was working with the players. And this year, we announced a, uh, an official collaboration as their mental performance coach. And Tyler Shattuck was nice enough and kind enough to uh, to write me a testimonial. And for those of you who don't know, I guess I should say like the Salmon Arm Silverbacks playing the BCHL, and the BCHL is a junior A league out here in Western Canada and Western United States uh, that plays host to players that who their biggest goal and aspiration is to have a D1 scholarship in the United States. Uh, they want to get a full ride to a university, and the BCHL is a fantastic place to do that. Very, very high percentage of the players in the BCHL do obtain full ride scholarships, and the uh, Salmon Arm Silverbacks in the interior division of the BCHL has been a fantastic program, very successful winning program, uh, and also great at placing players at the D1 level. Uh, so that's where I am at, and that's the, that's the level of players that, that, that are taking this. And and I just wanted to share what uh, Tyler was kind enough to write at the end of last season. And he wrote, I, am, I immediately saw the benefits of working with Jason and his peak potential program. Our players were more adept at handling adversity, letting go of frustration, and even using it as a tool for performance. Jason's knowledge of the game combined with his expertise in mental coaching played a significant role in our team's performance on and off the ice this season. I would highly recommend Jason to any athlete or team looking to increase mental toughness for an athletic advantage. So I'm super appreciative of that. Always grateful for... Um, for people who are willing to share their experience and allow me to share it publicly. And uh, also very grateful for the opportunity to work with these players. Great group of kids again this year, great group of players that want to get better, that really care about each other and and uh, and are always looking for ways to improve, ways to get better and, and are curious about how to do that and are willing to go outside of the normal box of physical training and, and start talking about, hey, what... How am I approaching this game mentally? What what am I missing maybe in my in my approach to practice or in my preparation or my 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 relationship with mistake and failure? Like where are the, where are some of these uh, where, where are some areas that I can that I can get better that I can add some tools to my toolbox to support me um, to be the best that I can be and to reach the peak potential that I so often like to talk about. So awesome group of kids, but they're motivated. They want to, they want to improve. And, and, uh, and if you have a player or if you have a competitive group that, that would not only would you know they would benefit, uh, that you, they would be able to take these skills with them onward, wherever they go, but they also get that extra advantage while on the ice, while playing the game, uh, while attending a training camp or, a, or the playoff game or the overtime power play shift, like all these areas where it shows up that, you know what, your, your mental toughness and your mental approach really make a difference, uh, then by all means, check out Up My Hockey uh, as, a, as far as the support me mechanism is concerned, as far as the service is concerned. That's at upmyhockey.com. As you may or may not have heard, we are definitely expanding this fall into association level support. So for all your competitive teams or uh, for all of your um, all of your membership base, if, if you think mental fitness uh, is important uh, as, as it is becoming much more in vogue now, it's much more of a regular conversation that our players need to have this type of support so they can thrive in any situation. They can, they're empowered to handle uh, the adversity that comes in front of them and they also allows them to come together and have a language to handle things as a team then uh, Up My Hockey is your stop, and I'm, and I'm your guy, and I'm your coach to help you get that done. So thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening to the conversation, and we will get back to it right now with Mike Needham on the Up My Hockey podcast. But maybe we'll shift back to you, like making that choice now to jump to 
um, junior A hockey, you know, with, uh, you said the Fort Saskatchewan Traders. Sounds pretty similar to me. I, I jumped to the BCHL. I played my first year of Bantam, and then um, second year Bantam, I, I went to uh, Penticton. I played with the Panthers. Paul Correa was there at the time, and that was my gateway into the WHLs as a 16-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, what were your reasons and your family's reasons? I'm sure it wasn't just your choice, and probably mom and dad were involved in that decision as well, um, to, you know, pack up kind of leave home, right? Or, or were you in Fort Saskatchewan? I, I was, at the time I was with the, yeah, I was in Fort Saskatchewan. That's yeah. right, so you didn't have to leave home. So that was a nice advantage. So you didn't have yeah. to leave home, but you did make the jump to junior A playing with 20-year-old men as a mm-hmm. as a 15-year-old, maybe even a 14-year-old, you said, if you're there for a season and a half. So yeah. Um, yeah, walk us through that and how you felt that was the the best place for you. Well, you know what, I uh, honestly came out of Bantam, um, you know, pretty accomplished player at the time and had, had some had some success. and. And uh, the traders, obviously, as I mentioned, my home team, home junior program, came to me and said, "Would you like to come to come to camp?" So went into camp and had to make the team. You know, that was that was first and foremost had to be of the level, um, and you know, felt comfortable right away. Felt challenged. Um, you know, I think if I remember correctly, I scored 30 goals as a 15-year-old that year in the league and was an all-star. So it was the right level for me. Pushed me. Um, and at the time, I, I had a, I wanted to play in the Western League. That was sort of my dream to play in that league. Um, I was, I talked about the process of listing. I think at the beginning here, listing players going on a protected list in the Western League back in those days. And at the, at the time, I was with the Calgary Wranglers. Um, you know, a long time ago now, dating myself, the Wranglers have been out of there for a number of years. But uh, now the Lethbridge Hurricane. Uh, organization but anyway um i was with with the the wranglers and quite frankly um didn't really gel uh didn't want to be in that program um coaches just a few things i'd gone to camps they wanted me to play there but just i just didn't have a comfortable feeling um so that's the reason really i i didn't go even earlier to the western league was that so playing at home was a natural thing for me um and through that that uh near the end of the first year um, the Blazers were able to uh, trade and acquire my rights. Um, you know, so again, going back in as a 16 year old, um, actually, sorry, it was midway through the second year I was playing as a 16 year old back in, in Fort Saskatchewan. They, they acquired my rights. As soon as I was traded to Kamloops, uh, again, I wanted to play in the league and Kamloops was the team, you know, at the time was dominant. And, and so uh, that's where I wanted to go. And it was uh, natural. Ken Hitchcock was the coach. Um, he had kind of talked to me off and on through the summer leading in. He was a guy that, uh, you know, I just felt comfortable with and, you know, felt that, uh, he was going to give me, uh, you know, the, the coaching and the tools I needed to be a pro. And, you know, when they traded for me at that time, it was natural. I left midway through that season, went to Camelos and then never, you know, never, the rest is history. Sorry. Camelos was a wonderful opportunity for me, uh, played with some great players there. You know, the Mark Reckies of the world and the Scott Niedemeyers, Daryl Sidors, those types of players. Um, then had a great run through uh, through my years there. Yeah, how about, um, well, first, uh, maybe just back with the the, the Traders days. Do, do you think sure. it would have been a difference if there wasn't an AJHL team in your hometown? Like, would that have been a, a much bigger decision to make, that you'd have, have to leave home now at that age and all the rest that goes along with that? I, I think so. You know, I really felt... Um, I just, I, I didn't think that playing midget would be challenging enough at the time, I think. And, uh, you know, when I went to junior, obviously, 
being on the all-star team and as I smashed and scoring 30 goals as a 15 year old, I was right. I needed the challenge and, and I probably would have been more inclined to, to be leaving for sure. Uh, it was nice. It was there. Um, I was comfortable. And I think that also is a big thing. I was able to live at home. Um, you know, it's not easy. We've all done it. I've, uh, hockey players at some point are going to leave home and it is not easy to do, uh, especially at 15 and 16 years old. So uh, yeah. I was fortunate in that, in that regard. Um, and I was ready to go, you know, at 16, um, partway through that that season, right after Christmas, ready to go. And, and I needed that next challenge. And maybe we'll interweave that just with what you're doing now at OHA because, you know, I left at well, I didn't leave. See, that's the thing. Like, I, I left Vernon at 14 to go play with Sherwood Park in the minor hockey system. They had one of the best Phantom programs going. And, and I again, yeah. I didn't think, you know, whatever. It won't get into me. But so I went there. But the thing was, my mom came with me. I was the mm -hmm. only child. So, like, my family was able to do that. And then the next year in Penticton, I was a 15-year-old. And my mom came with me again, like, got a condo there. And and, and, I, and she didn't want me billeting or being by myself at that age, right? Sure. So, um I honestly didn't have much an iron in the fire with that. Like, I, I can't remember if I thought it was great or didn't. I just wanted to go play, right? So I think that's sure. just the way it worked out. And that was the rules that mom had that I, she was going to be coming with me. And then at 16, I left for Spokane. And that was when I lived with the Billet family and mom didn't come at that, that, that point. Um, so again, I, I don't really, I only have my own world to think of there with that. But, you know, now, like with what you're, with what, with OHA and the academy system, and even with my oldest son now, Hudson, right, who, who thinks he wants to be a CSHL player next year. Uh, there's a good chance that he won't be living at home, but this is now we're yeah. talking 14 years old, I know. right? Like we're talking pretty young stuff here. Um, the billet, the billet scenario in, in your program must be one of the most important pieces of it. I, I would assume we're dealing with kids that are that young coming, coming to your, uh, coming to your town. Absolutely. You know, and, and we take, you know, we take that very seriously there, you know, or here at OHA, uh, we have a full-time, um director of residential life a, a, a person that is doing that full-time that's his job so you know first of all going out and recruiting billets and then going to the home making sure that the the you know the space is adequate for the for the the players and um you know a, a real in-depth uh interview process with with the player and then the family to make sure um you know for example there's no pet pet allergies and food allergies and things like that so they're you know, we take a lot of pride in it, and, and it's been a wonderful part of our program for a long, long time. And a lot of the same families are doing it for the for great reasons and have long-time relationships built. And, and I'm sure you would you'd remember your Spokane days and your family from, from Spokane. So, yes, um, so yes it, it, it is something we take very seriously. And you know what? You look at a 14-year-old, as we just talked about coming, it has to be a comfortable uh, you know, family oriented environment. They have to be looked after well. And, you know, again, that's why we invest the dollars in a full-time person to do just that. Yeah. Good for you guys. Do you, um, <clears throat> do you have many uh, families that do like how I said, my mom comes like, especially that you 15 age, do you have parents that come and, you know, whatever relocate for the winter just to be closer and with their kids? Absolutely. You know, that is part, um, you know, it, it, uh, some of the families do do that. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's everybody's sort of in a different position, both financially you know, working parents, all those types of things. Um, and so, yeah, that does happen. Now, a lot of times, you know, a lot, not a lot, but there are times where 
maybe a couple of uh, players from an area come and they share they share some uh, some rental of a property and you know parents kind of mix come back and forth in and out uh, and it's somebody's mom that is very close to that uh, that player that's with them right. so or dad too for that yeah. matter so uh, so yeah it, it's everybody's different and then their individual sort of needs or wants um, are different and and we see all different things for sure yeah. Yeah, I mean, to your point with the billets, I totally, yeah, they, not that I have an amazing, like, not I don't talk to them all the time, but like sure. I do once a year, probably I'll call my yeah. bill from Spokane yeah. if I ever go back through there for sure. I try and set up a, you know, a, a dinner or a lunch and, you know, it's just, I mean, when you, when you find the right one, it's, it's awesome. Obviously they, they, they're, they're around you around probably the most formative times of your life, you know, your, yeah. your late teenage years and, uh. And it's a memorable scenario. And also, I mean, then that's why it's so important and credit to you guys to have somebody looking after that on a full-time basis, because if it's, <clears throat> if it's not done well, it can like ruin kids too. I mean, we've, we've probably seen that before a little bit, unfortunately on, uh, on some scenarios where it doesn't work out, but um, yeah, you I mean your time in Camelot, I was looking at some of the teams there. You mean some of the names and you mentioned some of them, but the, the one, the one that you didn't mention um which as far as from a point perspective had was the most prolific mind you your time there was, wasn't very long when he was there but was rob brown and he was yeah. quite a character kind of at the time and also went on I'm not sure if he was on the pittsburgh team that, that you were there with in 92 but i mean 212 points like he's the last guy to touch 200 points in the whl and um i i mean I, i've heard some good stories i'm sure they're folklore <laughs> just kind of about the way the way he was and the way he played and one of which, and maybe you can vote for this. I heard, I heard it was like an exhibition game, or who knows what kind of game it was. But Hitchcock was yelling at at uh, at, at Brown to back check, you know, that he needed to back check. And I and I heard he came over to the bench, he leaned on the bench, and he said, "Hitch, I don't back check. They back check me." <laughs> <laughs> well, there was there was uh, a many many of those types of comments through the years, and Rob Brown, um, yeah, he he was a and then he was a real cool personality to go along with his talent i mean he uh yeah that was always a knock he didn't work ex overly hard without the puck all those things but you know honestly when you score 212 points uh you have the puck a heck of a lot more than you don't and so uh, he was pretty pretty special um you know and went on to the to the nhl too he's a 50 goal scorer in the, in the nhl playing with lemieux um there's a lot of stories, uh, some good, some bad, about Robbie Brown. Uh, but what I remember with my time there, it was my 16-year-old season with, with Robbie, um, and then he turned pro at 19. Um, I just remember a good human, good person, always really, really good to me as a young player, um, and just an exceptional talent that wanted, you know, wanted to win and, and made people around him better. Everybody that played with him, had success and so uh i mean that is the true sign of a great player and you know you, i don't know you never say never but uh, that that record has stood a long time and i'm not sure in the way the game's played today if it'll ever be broken yeah i mean it's impressive actually the um one of my previous guests mark dial hmm. yeah, maybe a name you remember he was a junior himself yeah and he played with mark frankie bantam actually who i just had on frankie scored 83 goals the one year they were playing together and um just one of those, you know, chemistry one and, you know, opportunity two with how much they were playing and just kind of the stars aligned that year. But I mean, that hasn't been beat. And that was in like whatever it was, 94 or 95, like no one's beat uh, Mark's, Mark's numbers from that point. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there, 
they have to jump 167 before they can get to 212, right, or whatever it was. So, yeah, yeah. yeah who knows with 212. Mind you, if Connor Bedard was around for one more year, maybe he'd have a chance to do it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's just nuts. Not so numbers, you know, the 212 points in 63 games. That's an average of over three a game, right? Like, that's that's hard to do over a season. I, I talked to that with my boys just about the NHL level, right? I mean, just from the math side of it. I mean, if you don't if you don't get a point in, in a game, like, you need six the next night, right, or seven, yeah. like, to keep oh. pace. You know, Absolutely, and he was. Uh, I believe that year he was. He played in the World Juniors too. I think if you look back, um, it was a seventy-two game schedule at the time, and he was probably at sixty-three or four because of the World Juniors. So, yes. I mean, it's it's just incredible numbers. It truly is. Yes. And um, you know, again, I, I don't know if it'll ever be beaten based on. It's just the games played a little bit differently <clears throat> nowadays. A uh, little bit, you know, more tight checking, all those types of things. And and honestly, the goaltending is better uh than it was so you know a little harder to get a buy those guys yeah you mentioned some huge names there i mean scott niedermeyer is in any i mean a hall of famer i'm not mm -hmm. sure if mark recce is if he's not he's probably right he's, on the outside looking yeah he's, he's probably gonna be yeah yeah he's probably gonna be um and you mean robbie brown there's greg hoggood there that's kind of yeah. an underrecognized name that was an absolutely special special talent um I, I like I like looking back now, like when you were there at the time, like who did you think would have been, did you, like who would you have put your finger on to be the guy? Uh, what, is it the way it worked out? <clears throat> well, you know what, uh, Mark Recchi, I was fortunate as a 16-year-old as a, a when I first got there, I, I got to play with him and then uh, my 17-year-old season was, was on his wing. He played center for us there. Um, he, he was special. He was special in a lot of ways. Not a big guy, you know, but just a workhorse, skilled, uh, so much will to win battles. And um, you just, you kind of had a feeling that this guy is going to do something special. What he did in his career, uh, you know, maybe not so much. Like, like for him to be, you know, 14 or almost 1,500 NHL games, the Stanley Cups that he's won with different franchises, you know, I, w I may not have fought that that level, but right. there was something special in him. You knew there was something. Scott Niedemeyer, right from day one, I was a 19-year-old when Scott came in as, as a 16-year-old. You know, two months into the season, he's quarterbacking the power play, one of the most lethal power plays in a long time uh, in that league with uh, Len Berry, Phil Huber, myself, and, you know, Scotty on the it, – it was a it was pretty dangerous uh, PP, and he's a 16-year-old. So I knew then. This kid is, he's another planet good, you know. Um, right. And he didn't, you know, that's a, Scott Niedemar, if you know anything about Scott, he had no idea <laughs> how good he was, you know, so so uh, non-assuming and so, like, you know, just, just one of those things, just one of those guys that um, really didn't know how good he was, truly. Right. So uh, so it's pretty special. Um, and yeah, Daryl Sador is another. Daryl Sador was an exceptional talent as well. So, nice. uh Lots of guys like that. Yeah, the uh, the Niedemars, I had a chance to play with Rob. He was drafted by Florida, too, as was I. And obviously, Rob played, play, played quite lots of years there with the Panthers. And just really, like, down-to-earth, just good people, right? You know, yeah. and that's kind of what I've heard about the Niedemars. And obviously, it must be something to do with mom and dad and their upbringing there and how, the, how they were raised. But they just really did seem like just – you just wanted to be around them, good energy. You know, there was no – there was no pomp, you know, there was no, uh, you know, it's just kind of, kind of, yeah, just down to earth. And that's what I've heard about Scott as well. It's, uh, are you still there? Yeah, I am. I just lost just for a sec. Sorry about that. No, no, no worries. 
<laughs> yeah, looking at uh, looking at Mark, just when I brought him up, like you said, 1,650 NHL games, and that's from a fourth-round pick, 67th overall. You know I mean, like, obviously he did great. And the way you described him, I don't know how familiar you are with like, or how much you keep in touch with the Blazers or, or, or junior, uh, major junior now, but almost sounds a little bit like a Logan Stankoven uh, at this you're, you're right. You know, you're, you're, I would, looking, I've seen Logan play enough games. I, I coached against him in the CSS, SSHL and, Saw him a little bit on the ice in Kamloops now. Uh, very similar player. Very similar. Just have that will, that passion, that you will not stop me. And so, uh, yeah, that's a that's a that's a good comparison for yeah. sure. He's got a high motor from what I've seen, and like really, really competitive. To your point, and maybe that's a, a maybe a little good segue there. The uh, the competitive nature and like the mindset, the attitude of, of the player, and just how. I don't know. I believe it stands out maybe a bit more in today's game than ever before, just because it's such a skill-based game that I think these guys that have a little bit of edge to their game and some sandpaper and, and have a nose for, for the for the hard areas that it's like, wow, I mean, this, this is somebody that I noticed. Do you find that as well, not only when you're watching a game, but maybe even when you're recruiting for some of your programs? Is that something you look for? Oh, absolutely. You know, it is, it's the one thing that uh, it's hard to teach if you don't have, you know, um, it's hard to be consistent and get that consistent. I call it will, the will to win a puck battle. Um, and and guys that have it, guys that are not afraid to get into the contact, into those tough areas, really do stand out. Um, and to really find one that's, you know, over like physical and, and has all the elements, it's almost hard nowadays. Everybody is skilled. Like, I mean, the kids of today that come into our program, they're more skilled puck skills than me. Like, there's no question about it. I played at a high level and they have better puck skills at 14 and 15 than I do. Um, but I would, but, but the one thing, like just looking back on how I played the game, they lack that part. They really do. And it's, it's hard to get it, you know, get it to, to be consistent in their game. So, um, yeah, the, the players that have it, they are absolute gems, honestly. They're the ones that you want in your team. And you look at NHL teams, if we just use that, um, the teams that win all have that type of player or are multiple players like it. Tampa Bay Lightning, you know, didn't win last year, but you look back to the, the couple of years, their talent has it. You know, the, the Braden points of the world, not a big guy. He's similar to a Mark Recchi, like the guys that we talked yeah. about. They have the will. They have the skill to make a play, but they have the will to go to the hard areas to score. Um, and he's just one example of many on that team that are, uh, you know, just gritty, hard to play against uh, guys. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, I like I like that too. That you uh, well, even when that we talked about, you know, Stan Coven or you I mean one of the guys that I that I refer to is hurt right now, but is a uh, Kyler Yamamoto, yeah, uh, another WHL prospect. But just how how people can be competitive in in maybe a smaller package size you know like <clears throat> that's one of the things when i my, my facebook parent group you know the 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 confidence or the willingness to compete w when you're in a small package right like the like size it doesn't have to, i mean it's more i think it's more here right like it's 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 something that you have to have an approach to you know like how how can i still be effective and when you watch a kyler yamamoto like i think i would study him if i if i was a younger guy just because he's so competitive on pucks he's not going to hurt you physically ever you know like he's he's not he's not intimidating that way but he's intimidating with his tenacity right like you know he's just not going to stop and i just don't I, and i think some of these smaller players like you can get away now in today's game by being really really strong on pucks and really willing to to get in there in that in that type of a uh, way and i just 
again, to, to your point, it, it seems like some of that, and it pains me because I'm a bit of a dinosaur that way. Like, that's what I love. I really love that aspect of hockey. You know, I mean, the, those guys that are willing to do that, right? I love yeah. that. And you combine that with the skill. And I think the pendulum is going to start swinging back a little bit. Like, we're going to have a really special game, I think, in like five to seven years. Because I think that like that aspect is going to become more wanted, right? And, and I think it's because it's more wanted, I think more guys are going to start being willing to do it. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think uh, scouting has to change and it is be, it's beginning to change a little bit what we look for in a, in a player. Um, because, you know, I, I just mentioned, you study any Stanley Cup roster, they have a bunch of players that are that type on it. I mean, you yeah. still need the skill uh, for sure, but there is a will associated with the winning. Um, and, it, and it's been that way since the dawn of the game. You know, like uh, you need guys that are gritty that want to play that want to win that are going to do whatever it takes uh the game changes in the playoffs it changes at every level uh you know don't kid yourself to think that the whistle gets a little less blown by the refs you know a little bit more is allowed um so you still have to want it more than your opponent and um you know and, and i believe that too i think that part of the game is drifted away a little bit because everybody is just so so drawn to puck skills um, but at the end of the day, um, the most successful player has a balance of both. Yeah. And, uh, and that, you know, I, I push that. I mean, it, uh, just to talk a little bit about what I would do with, with a team in a week, for example, I have one day every week that is just battle and compete. That's what we call it. It's the work day, boys. It's going to be battle and compete. And it's not just one-on-ones. It's tracking. You know, it's, it, it could be all sorts of different things that are in that. But it's hard work. It's game-like, and it's about will. You know, who wants to get that puck more than the other guy? And, and you know, as the year goes on, those types of things become more ingrained in the player. Um, you know, they, don't, they have less issues with contact. They have less issues with, with the battle. And I think it helps, you know, they're in their growth. So, you know, it's, yeah, you can have a skill day in their, in their toe-dragging and doing shooting and all that stuff. But the skill of battling, the skill of competing – we do not work on enough. And I yeah. think that's extremely important. Yeah, good for you. I think that's great. It's funny, as you were saying that, I just sort of, you know, there's, I'm, I'm sure you've had a lot, obviously, in your in your long career working with players, but uh, there's a couple of just moments that have, that stood out for me, uh, whether it's working with, with, with my players, you know what I mean, that uh, my clients now in the mindset comport- portion or my kids, and, and, and Hudson just came to mind because when we first started, uh, and he's my oldest, for those who are, who are listening here, I know Mike, Mike knows, but... Uh, and at, at the Adam level, you know, he was still obviously figuring the game out and where he was at it. And and uh, he was the oldest. So usually the oldest is usually the most tentative and most cautious, right? Out of my three, it seems like he's fitting the norm that way. And, um, and he's a little bit tentative on pucks. I mean, this is like we're talking eight years old, right? And so we were having this conversation. I was like, well, Hudson, who who do you think gets the puck out there? There's only one and there's 10 people, right? So who, who, get, who gets the puck? And, you know, he was like, well, the 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 fastest guy and I was like well no he doesn't get it you know and and so we go and he kept the most skilled guy and I'm like no it's the guy who wants it the most that's who gets the puck and it was sort of this weird thing at eight years old where it's kind of his lights shifted because he didn't think he was the fastest guy right and he didn't think he was the biggest guy and so all the things he was t- telling me I was like no 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 it's the one that wants it the most and it was like I could see that for him it was like wow I if I that's just a choice for me like if I want it more it could be my puck you know yeah and um 
And so like sort of a foundational concept, but it's actually stuck with him. And, and, and when the players that do have that, it really is like, to your point, that will. And when you have that attitude that you mean, no, this is my puck, you know, like it's mine and I'm going to want it more than you. And because of that, I'm going to have it more. And, um, and it's kind of a cool thing. I just, I just love that because it's totally something that, that translates into scouting, into watching from the stands, mm-hmm. you know, into coaching, right? Uh, the more guys that you have that are, that are tenacious like that, the better, but um Back to you, though. Let's go to – so you have a really great jump to your uh, – to pro. Uh, you know, like you go to Muskegon, like I said, CIHL, which was an older league at the time. For those who aren't familiar, like there was definitely some prospects there, but it was it was a lot of guys that either had played pro already at the NHL level or whatever. Yep. There, there was a lot of older guys. You talked about Jock Calendar. So it was um, it was a little bit more polished game, I would say. Like the, I, the IHL is a little more polished than the AHL. And um, – and to be productive there uh, was was no easy task, as, uh, you know, especially with all these veterans around. So you stepped in and had a and had a great start. Like, do you remember anything about that year? You know, I mean, be- becoming a professional, paying your own bills, sure. you know, figure, figuring out all that stuff while you're trying to play the pro game. Yeah, uh, you know, things that that stand out. First time truly away from, I know, obviously li- leaving a bill at home, just like having mom and dad truly around, as we talked about earlier. But uh, moving into a place and you know, just having to do everything on your own, go get your own groceries, build, you know, make your own meals, um, make sure you're in bed. Like, there's no one there to tell you all these things and do that for you. So growing up real fast, honestly, uh, and learning how to do it on the run. Um, you know, I remember that. It was it was, it was, was some growing pains, but wonderful. I really enjoyed that part. Um, I had a tough start. Like, you know, go back to a lot of good things. I had a really tough start the first uh, 11 games or 12 games of the season, I sat, I, I was a healthy scratch, even though I led the team in scoring in, in uh, the, the preseason. Um, and it simply had to learn a hard lesson real early that I wasn't as high a draft pick as some, as some of the other players that were coming into the program, Yeah, getting sent down from the Penguins. And so I had to just wait my time, just pay my dues. And uh, Phil Russell, I don't remember that name, Phil Russell played in uh, Chicago big defenseman years years back and and one of the hard nosed guys of the era. Um, he was my assistant coach at the time, and he kind of took me under my, under his wing and said, "Mike, we're just going to do extra. You're going to work. You're you're going to get your chance, and you must be ready for it." Um, and so, kind of kept me on the sort of the straight and narrow. And uh, you know, from that point on, when I finally got in the lineup, things just took off. I I was able to. Uh, battle my way in. Uh, then I worked my way into the second power play unit shortly after that. And then I was on the first power play unit. And then all of a sudden, you know, having success and being one of the top players at that level uh, it started to happen. You know, I was this my second year pro. I was second in the league in goals and, you know, playing with Jock Callender and Dave McKaylick. And so just learning how to be a pro, learning how to go through those tough times. Um, and we all know that, Jason, they're going to happen to you at some point. Uh, but having good mentorship around me uh, made a huge difference uh, to to that start of my career. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I love that you bring that up uh, and how it isn't fair, you know, like, and, and I think that that's, uh, that concept is so tough. And I think it's getting tougher, honestly, in because of so- what society is telling kids too these days, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't want to get too philosophical, but with, you know, the everyone gets a ribbon and with the, you know, everyone is allowed to play and with the, you know what I mean? Like all, all, the, all that kind of messaging, 
Now, when you're at the junior level or the pro level or wherever it happens to you, and all of a sudden it's not fair, and 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 it gets really easy to be feel victimized, you know. And and I know that we felt victimized even back in the day, and that's with a completely different set of environmental mm -hmm. factors going on, yeah. right? So I think that made it hard. But like, so to your point, I mean, so you you roll in there. You lead the team in scoring an exhibition, and now you can't even get on the ice for the first 12 games. Like, there must have been a lot of mental battle going on for you about, you know, flipping from playing the victim to playing, trying to be a pro and where you fit. Like, maybe can you walk us through sort of the mental game that was going on then? For sure. And, you know, it, it was a difficult, really difficult time. Like, I, I was, you know, in everything I did leading up to that, um, I was the, the one of the top guys, you know, you're, you're the, the go-to you're, you're on the power, you're doing all those things. You're a leader. And then to be told just like that. And really at that level, not necessarily told why, you right. know, they just, just you're out, you, you go and you look at the, your name's not on the roster for the game. And so, yeah, you're wondering what the heck happened? What did, what have I done wrong? Um, and ultimately, you know, as I mentioned, Phil Russell, the assistant coach, took me under his wing. He was the one that told me it is going to happen for you, but I believe in you first and foremost. Um, just stick with this, stick with it. And again, it was a month and a little bit of just sitting out, watching, uh, working as hard as I could in practice to try to catch the head coach, you know, just to maybe get an opportunity. But ultimately it wasn't even his choice. And, and that's what I had to learn uh, at the professional level there are, especially in the minor leagues, right, at the, at the minor league level, your NHL GM might be dictating who's playing. And so I had to learn that the hard way. And ultimately, it was a great experience. You know, I went through it, battled through it, had a positive attitude, kept working. Um, and it, you know, it ultimately turned out really well for me and, um, you know, became one of the leaders on that team uh, within a year. So, uh, you have to go through that. And every kid that plays the game, if they're going to go to a higher level are going to go through something like it. Uh, they may not like their role. Uh, the coach might want them to check. Uh, they think they're an offense, but you do what you need to do to get in the lineup. The more you're in the lineup, the better opportunity you have for ice time when you, and you, then you do the best with your ice time. And, and that's ultimately the message. Uh, you are, you are not owed anything in the game. The game owes you nothing. You meet, need to earn it all. And that's what I learned there. You know, uh, uh, sometimes it's not fair. Just go and earn it every day. Do the best you can. And, uh, you know, live through it. And, and I was a lot stronger for it because other things in my career came to. You know, there was other adversity that hit. Yeah, the... Uh... You mentioned the earning it and, and, and kind of, you know, and we were talking about the fairness of it. And I think the message out there is like the, the truth of it is some guys need to earn it more than other guys need to earn it. <laughs> yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And, and that's, I mean, there's no right or wrong. It's just the way it is. And I think, you know, I mean, even circling back to the passion side of it and how much you want to be there, you know, like there's going to be times where it's going to be easy to quit and you might even be justified in doing so, right? Like <laughs> this isn't working out for me. This isn't my spot. Um, but it's amazing how, how many guys reflect on the times that might have been the hardest times in their life. And the fact that they got through it was the best thing that happened to them. You know, yeah. like that was the biggest learning piece of their entire career was the time where they hated the game the most, potentially, yeah. you know. You know, it's it's a great point, Jason. And, and I, I, I reflect on that time. It was difficult, but you're right. And I have so much, so much, you know, I, 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 so, I'm so thankful to Phil Russell. You know, again, he's, he's, he, he didn't have to do that, but he did.
because he knew, you know, he's, he's probably been through it himself as a player enough and saw this kind of stuff happen. He knew I needed some support and he gave it to me. And, um, you know, that was, that was special. He, he was, I, I, I still, to this day, you know, it's a long time ago now. I still talk to Phil. I still, you know, we're, we're still, you know, get to, uh, it's just one of those things that'll be long lasting. You know, he's a good man. And, uh, and I appreciate what he did for me because he kept me grounded, uh, kept me focused on what I had to do and, uh, ultimately worked out. Yeah, no, perfect. Well, and, and credit to you too, for being willing to, to listen and to take it. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes we're not in that headspace where we're even going to be willing to, to listen, you know? Um, so you have to be approachable. You have to be coachable, which are other things that I talk about with the players sometimes, but that is a skill set in and of itself, right? Like, what are you open to hearing and what are you open to applying, you know, yeah. because, uh, Sometimes we get in those in those spots where uh, you know we, we got the blinders on, whether it be you know literally or uh, or, or through the auditory capacity. We don't want to hear it. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and great that you remember him. And those are the moments. I mean, which now I'm sure when you reflect on that, like what an opportunity you have potentially on a, on a yearly basis to impact somebody. You know, like to to have that lasting effect. And I think that the coaches that are doing it, that are doing it right, recognize that there's lots of opportunities in a year to make a difference in it for a player. And um, and yeah, and are and are able to do that because we all sort of need those those. There are those times where we need it, right? Yeah, for sure. Do you do you see that? What I mentioned earlier, just with the with the kids, today's athletes. Did you do you find that there there is um, maybe a, a a lesser capacity of resiliency in, in them, uh, just as a general broad based spectrum? Like, do you do you see that the willingness to deal with adversity and how they how they uh, manufacture what that narrative means to them? Yeah, I think I think there is, uh, you know, um, what we what we tend to see now, especially as the kids, you know, the elite kid kind of moves in, you have their advisors, you have parents, and everybody speaks, you know, for the kid instead of, you know, a kid be an advocate for themselves a little bit and listening to the message. Um, so it is a challenge, you know, uh, when when you look at I look at it I, I, as I, you mentioned I do this that's what I do for a living I deal with a lot of kids we have 150 plus kids in our program all of them are special all of them need opportunity and all of them need mentorship and and that's what I take a great pride in doing I male or female in our program we get a chance to work with them all and which is wonderful um, but the biggest thing is uh, working with some of their problems in relation to the coaches uh, and it's just communication and it's the willingness just to listen. It's in the coach's best interest to have a successful player. Like they're not in it to be against you <laughs> as a player, you know? Uh, and so, you know, it's opening your mind, being open to uh, some constructive talk and, and not necessarily criticism, but just change to who you are as a player. Be open to it. Understand that, that the coach has 19 other players as well that they have to mold into a team and everybody's important. And so um, that is the one big thing with the with this generation is what is it what's in it for me and only me. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you know at the end of the day, uh, you have to understand that the coach has 19 or 20 other people that they're trying to do the same thing with. And at some point, you have to give a little bit in order to to fit into that team team environment. Um, so it is challenging. Uh, it is. It's probably more so than. You know, in our day, Jason, it was the coach told you to do it. You didn't say a word. You just did it. You yeah. know, it was it's it's how it was. And and nowadays it's a question of why. And, uh, you know, that's the big thing for me is 
is making sure that the athlete knows that the why is in their best interest. You know, we're doing this. Why? Because it's going to make you a better player, person, you know, more adaptable uh, mm-hmm. as you move on. And, and I, so that's the big thing. Yeah. And those are the lessons that are hard to see. You know, well, one of the things that I, one of the stories that I tell in, in my uh, mindset program is about being able to see opportunity when maybe it's not the opportunity that you want to see. And, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the stories was from a U15 prep player actually that, that I was working with who, uh, it was kind of funny. It was just like a, this moment in time where it was an uh, overtime game and, and he was for, for whatever reason, wasn't put out on the ice for overtime. Right. And, uh, and he thought he was one of the better defensemen, thought he was having a good game. And this, like, this completely unwound him, like, in the moment, right? Like, yeah. was, was completely feeling down, like, lost confidence, thought the coach hated him. Like, all those things that kind of manifest with that, um, you know, essentially got pouty, left the left the dressing room right away and, and sort of put him in a slump for almost two, three weeks. Didn't want to look the coach in the eye. Didn't I mean, all these things happened because of this moment, right? And um, And then after we had a chance to talk about it, like, and, and reflect, it was like, well, what, what could have been the opportunity there? Like, I know he, like his opportunity is that he wanted to be on the ice. He wanted to impact the game and he wanted mm-hmm. to score the goal or whatever the case was, right? But it turns out that that wasn't the opportun- opportunity for him that day. And, and then we he, on his own, like through questions, was like, well, I could have learned to be a better teammate. I could have been learned to be more supportive. Maybe that was my moment. That was the opportunity for me to have a conversation with the coach that would have been difficult, you know, about, about what it is. And so it's nice when you can repackage it, right. And they can tell a different story about the scenario, but again, that's super hard to do. And it does sometimes take some mentorship or some coaching or whatever to change what the, uh, what the idea is. But I, I do believe in that, right? Like the player's capacity to, to grow as a, as a person, one, is going to help them as a player and also their ability to see other things outside of like the front and now of what they think that they want, right? Like, you know, to your point, right? Those 12 games that you didn't want to be on the bench those 12 games, but it probably taught you some humility. It probably taught you some respect. It probably, you know, really solidified your work ethic and your approach to the game. Like all these things that you weren't really wanting to focus on or thought you maybe needed to was, was what helped you have the, have the season that you did the following year. So anyways, it's kind of crazy. And I, again, that's more of a story for the parents out there that are going through something right now that they think, you know, little Johnny or, or, um, or or their daughter is, is struggling with and they see them hurting, right? That could be the best, best opportunity. It all depends how you want to frame it for them, you know, really. That, that's like that's well put and uh, it is something. Learning, learning opportunities happen in so many different ways and it's all what we take from it. Um, and the, the thing is of having the maturity, you know, and, and, and just sitting back, having the maturity to look at it from a different perspective and uh, it's hard. It, re- it really is. It was hard for me back those many years ago and it's mm-hmm. hard, I'm sure, for the kids of today, but um, but that's really what you have to do. The, the, ult- the, the, the real thing is the coach is in it for the best interest of that player. That, that's it. Uh, my job is to make everybody better and I'm in it for their best interest. And if parents and the kids themselves realize that and they just kind of think back or think about that, I think things get a lot easier and that's for every coach out there for the most part uh, they're in it for the betterment of the kid yeah yeah especially at the younger ages you mean yeah you mean uh, i'll push back a little bit because i think like that's why i like what i i do is because i am completely unbiased like i want that individual player to be the best that they can be yep. and i've also been the head coach so you are worried about the collective right there is a collective attitude of like how do we progress as a group so i think you you can't 
specifically focused on 20 individuals, you know, I guess at what, what age, but to your point, I mean, I do agree with you in the fact that like, there's no one out there that doesn't want someone to succeed or doesn't right, want right. someone to, to be good. Right. It's just, mm-hmm. it is tough because everyone wants the same minutes. I mean, as yeah. you know, right. Everyone yeah, wants, those, sure. wants those responsibilities and not everybody can have them. Uh, I, I would do us a disservice if I didn't talk about your world junior uh, gold medal. I mean, that was coming mm-hmm. on the heels of, um, uh, you know, your 59 goal season in Kamloops, you know, 125 points. You yourself were averaging two points a game, uh, got selected to play at the tournament, win the gold medal. And, and I, I briefly looked up like, holy smokes, as far as like who was at that tournament, like Lindros, Tony Amante, Nicholas Lidstrom, Pavel Burry, Yermir Jagger, Matt Sundin, like, like these are like names of oh, like, yeah. the era, yeah. right? Like, not all tournaments are like that. I mean, the World Junior is a special place. There's always a few superstars that are coming out of there. But, I mean, that's a lot of names, and I'm sure I, I missed some. So what was that experience like for you uh, playing there? Where was it, first of all? And and, and talk uh, talk a little bit about that. Sure. It was in Finland. Um, so we were we were able to, to head over early and stay at a, their Olympic uh, training center called Virmaki, which is in northern Finland, uh, very, very close to the Russian border. But um, the experience, I mean – it's hard to to really everybody talks about that how do you you know how do you explain it it, it is a, it was a dream you know no question it was something i wanted as a young player i wanted to play for canada and get the opportunity um so going to the training to, to training camp and going through all that stuff uh playing well you know waiting for my name uh, i'll never forget that morning when they do the selection you're sitting there waiting in your room for calls i still remember just sweating like come on please you know just praying that's going to be me and then getting getting the call going into the uh, coach's room and you know here's a pile of clothes canada stuff garb all over the place you've made it mike congratulations and um yeah it was it was unbelievable how how that made me feel and it's something that's still like goosebumps right now uh, thinking of it, but it was a great, great experience, you know, playing against those elite players that you talk about. Uh, we had Eric Lindros on our team, you know, uh, Mike, Mike Ricci, guys, you know, wonderful talents in, in their own right and Hall of Fame sort of guys. Um, but we weren't really at, at we weren't, the, Canada's always sort of the team to beat, as they say, we were in the mix, but there were, we probably weren't uh, the favorite that year and you know we just went out worked our butts off we were gritty we had lots of guys that uh, played hard played the right way um you know and we got her done Guy Sharon was the head coach and and i'll remember we had a loss we lost to sweden uh it was a little different format uh yeah, it was around robin format right yeah so we yeah. played everybody and it was just points by the end of it so um we lost to sweden which is a game we should not have lost but did and you know young guys didn't didn't have a good effort um, and then we were we were in our last game of, of the round robin, which was against the Czechs, Czech Republic at the time, and that's Yarmir Jager. Um, um, I think there's Reichel was I forget his first name. Robert uh, Reichel, yeah, he led the yeah, tournament. Robert points. Reichel, yeah, wonderful player in his own right. So yeah. you know these guys we got to defend. Anyway, we're in the middle of the game, actually not the middle, middle of the third period, um, and we get a call or get get word that the Russian team. Who it had they beat the Swedes, uh, were playing at the very same time. Um, you know the Russians would win, and at best we could get silver. Uh, but the Swedes scored late in the game, and all of a sudden 
they get the win. We now, with a win against the Czechs, are going to win the gold. So the last eight minutes are a blur. I will never forget being on the bench. And, you know, I admired the wonderful job of playing against Reichel and Jager. Uh, we defended him all game. Uh, and so it was just like, you know, pin your ears back, man. Do whatever you can. Block shots, dive. Like, it was a, it was one of those kind of hectic eight minutes, you know. You're uh, yeah. stressful, but also wonderful. I remember just the feeling when the buzzer went off. We knew we had won. And so it was an awesome, awesome experience. That is so cool. Yeah, I mean, you talk about that. I mean, there is, there is. I mean, you hear it in the interviews, but like, especially at that age and being Canadian and playing World Junior, it's just like the, TSN has done such an amazing job of making that be part of our culture um, for such a long time and when that tournament is. And, you know, to wear that leaf on your chest and to, mm-hmm. and to be able to, you know, to win gold ultimately is what you want to do. I mean, super, super special. And I'm, I'm so happy that we, that we share that, uh, that bond because mm-hmm. I mean, for a lot of us, I mean, you went on, I, mean, I guess you won the Stanley cup too, you know, playing, playing the five games and, and doing that. But for most guys, I mean, that's really the, the, the that's the best. If you're able to do that, that's the pinnacle. You know, I played 10 years pro and that's still probably the number one thing that happened in my hockey career, right? Like winning that gold medal. Um, so super fun. Who was out of that group there? Like again, just to reflect. You mean Eric Lindros? Well, he was a phenom. Like he was like that next coming uh, for those was, of you who yeah. don't know. And, and he was sixteen, I think, on your team at that time. That's, that's correct. Yeah. And he was probably six four and two hundred pounds at sixteen. He was massive. You bet. Yeah, you bet. He's a big man, and uh, <laughs> he he was a, a freak of nature. Truly, just such a big guy could skate and had the skill that he had. And, yeah. and physical. Like, he was a guy that wanted to run you through the, the boards. He wanted to leave a mark every time he hit you. Yeah. So, yeah, he was a throwback. Well, at that time, lots were like that, but definitely. Yeah. Well, interesting, though. I mean, yeah, but not even, right? Because he had that skill. Like, he was oh, yeah. he was yeah. a really skilled player that was just tough as nails and yeah. huge, right? Like he, comb- he had a combination of everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, like, sure. I wonder about him. Like, I honestly think... Like today, we talked about that, like that, I mean, how like the competitive player and the tough player is a little bit of a unicorn right now. Yeah. Could you imagine Eric Lindros in the NHL right now? You know, it'd be it'd be scary without the ability to hold a player up. You know, we, we right. could hold, you could throw the rope on and hold players up and hook and hold and all that to, to stop, impede progress. Oh, there'd be some, there'd be some D that, uh, that probably would be seriously injured. He hit you. He wanted to. To crush you. Yeah, yeah like I, I, I think that he might. I mean, I love playing those little like mind sessions, right? Like, yeah. you know, how yeah. good would Mario be, or how good would, Gretz, but like to throw a physical beast like him that had the skill that he had that was like super fast too. Like, I just think that he would terrorize the league. He'd have so much space, and like, how would you I stop agree. him? Yeah, because you That's couldn't. I mean, sure. you can't stick check anymore. You couldn't hook him. I mean, and he's bigger than everybody. It would just be. I'd love to see what that would look like because he was a. <laughs> He was a crazy good player. Well, yeah. let's talk about maybe moving into Mario, and we're, we're running to the end of our time here. I don't want to take up your time, but we got to talk about the cup. And I know sure. I read in at least Wikipedia says you got a ring. Did you get your name yeah. on the cup for those five games? Is, was that enough? I did. And it was you did. Fortunate. It was fortunate. They did put us on the cup. So, yeah, it was, uh, it was, got everything. It was great. It was a great experience for sure. That's absolutely craziness. So you get, and those, and that's your first kind of like, Step up and then, well, not that it's exact same, but Dwayne Sutter, I just had on um, the, the most recent release and, mm-hmm. and he got called up from junior and then joined that dynasty team and ended up winning four cups in a row. Actually, 19 playoff series he went 
without losing a playoff round at the NHL level. If you could imagine wow. that from like a wow, from a kid, like so yeah. crazy. So um, maybe talk about that team. I said we have to talk about Mario. Maybe just do it for my benefit. Uh, <laughs> you know, what was it like to practice with him, see him? Like even I don't know what what type of pain he was going through with his back at the time, but like you know, how special was he? And what did you what did you what did you remember most about Mario? Well, you know what, what I remember the most, he was going through a lot at the time. Like he, he was in a lot of back pain, having issues. He also was diagnosed the one year I played with him with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So he had a cancer treatment in the middle of all of this. Um, and so he, for a guy that was going through so much pain, couldn't practice very much, to be honest. He, he would come out in a track suit and get, you know, 20 minutes sort of skate, feel his hands and, and stuff like that. And then just, it was all game stuff. Like, honestly, it was a lot of just put on the gear for games because that's what his body could handle at that time. Um, and I, I have never, you know, never seen anybody with passing ability and then the strength, size, and power, you know, all blended into one. You know, he was just special in every way. Um, could, could physically, like Alindros, he was as big as Eric, probably taller, um, and a 240 pound frame, he could run you through the glass if he wanted to. Uh, but then he could dangle and, and put pucks into places and make passes and score a goal when needed. Um, you know, just, just an incredible talent. Uh, you know, the best I, I played against Wayne Gretzky too. Um, just different great. Gretz did it with a smaller frame and probably through just being so smart. Yeah. Uh, but the true skill, you know, has the package. I've, there, there may never be another Mario Lemieux like that. He just is so special uh, with his abilities. Um, you know, one story I'll tell you: when he came back from his 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 last treatment, he had a radiation treatment, and we were in Philadelphia. And so he comes back after missing, I think, eighteen games or something like that because of the the cancer treatment, and he gets five points in his very first. He hadn't been on the ice in six weeks. And he gets five points in a three, three and two, I believe, something like that, in Philly, uh, a hostile crowd. You know, just that was Mario. You know, he just was so gifted and so much, you know, just an elite talent that uh, uh, truly one of the best to ever put him on. Imagine if he was healthy too, right? Like similar to an or. I mean, I never, I never had the privilege of watching him play, but hearing people talk about him, I was just at a different level than everybody else, and yet he was yep. also injured. Like, my gosh, if 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 Mario had a healthy career, holy smokes! Um, I, I mean, and to your point, I mean, I heard that he wasn't maybe the best example as a captain. I mean, not because maybe he wasn't a hard worker, but just for whatever factors, right? He wasn't able to be out there, and he wasn't mm-hmm. a gym rat. Yes. And, you know, he, yeah. he he wasn't like that. Um, I heard the I heard the opposite though. I mean, you talked about Mark Recchi, also Ron Francis. I heard was like the kind of like the 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 ideal icon of what you would maybe want your younger guys to follow. Was there some? Did I name those names right? If you were to remember from that team, like those guys that would just be the ultimate professional that were always trying to get better and doing the little things. Yeah, well, Ron Ron Francis uh, was all of that for sure. Like, and and a, a better human too. Like, uh, the first say that uh, he was so good with young players. Um, a mentor, you know, have you for dinner, like just one of those guys that just made you feel a part of the team, regardless of what your role was with the team. And, and that's a special, you know, a special leader in its own right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then just talented, just a hardworking, lots of grit, not super quick, not, you know, not a real uh, blazing speed type guy, but again, super smart, 
good playmaker and and just you know one of the all-time leading scorers in the nhl for a reason a hall of fame player uh but a better person that's the one thing i'll say again um you know larry murphy was another name on that uh hall of fame one of the i think he's the top five or six all-time leading defenseman scorers uh played on that team again a great professional and so we did, we were blessed with the penguins at that time to have just you know, just amazing players and, you know, probably better people too. Right. Um, Isn't that a key old- factor? Like that's a massively key factor. And that's, oh, that's something that's like totally part of my platform is and what I really believe in is like the holistic development of the player, meaning like the personal development and those, yep. the ability to communicate and the ability to be a good teammate and all those things. Like, again, like it, it, it's, it, it allows you to be better on the ice. It allows you to have more longevity, but it allows you to win. I mean, and I think GMs and stuff are looking for that now. Like that's even part of the criteria. It's understood a little bit more like from a, from a scientific standpoint of like, this is like the culture that is required to have winners and it requires good people. Um, So you're speaking to that sounds like in spades, but that with those Stanley cup championship teams. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it, it didn't matter as I, as I mentioned, it didn't matter who you were within within the team, whatever, how big or small your role was, it made you feel like a big part of it. And uh, that's important. And, you know, uh, holding each other accountable, all those things you hear about, we want players that hold each other accountable. That's, that's, that's great. But making you feel to, you know, that your role is important is a lot more important to any winning team than holding somebody accountable. And what I mean by that is like, you know, maybe you go after a player for making a mistake on the bench. And I see that a lot in the young athletes right now. They think that's holding someone accountable or, or, or being a good teammate. It isn't. You know, basically all it does is uh, create animosity within the group. Um, being a good teammate, make them feel good about the role they play. That's the important part. And that's what leadership's all about. You know, if how big or small your role, you feel good about it you're going to fit in and it's going to be an enjoyable experience. Yeah. I mean, you're echoing uh, exactly what Brad Larson said on, on this podcast when he was with the <laughs> avalanche there, like with uh, Sackick and Forsberg and Blake, right. and like he said, these, the only thing that those guys wanted to do is win, right? That's yeah. it. And, and he yeah. said like the standard of excellence in that room, like was like nothing he's ever seen before, but he said like in those runs and they weren't successful the year he was there, but they, they, uh, they did go for a pretty good run was he felt playing six minutes a night that his job was like one of the most important on the team. Cause that's the way Forsberg made him feel about it. You mean like he totally felt a part of it. And you know, you mentioned the lightning and that's, that's the thing with these guys that, that win, you know I mean? Like the six through 12 forwards and this, you know, the five, six defensemen, seven, eight defensemen, they all feel like they are a part of it and they know they are a part of it. And because they are like, they, they get those results. So uh, kind of cool that you're saying that because I assume you'd have been in a similar role there with Pittsburgh. You you probably weren't getting top line minutes, and the minutes that you did get mattered. Uh, but it'd be easy to be forgotten about, even from yourself, right? If if people weren't giving you pats on the back or letting you know how how important they were. That's that's absolutely correct. That's a great point, and um, I mean that ultimately comes down from management a little bit. But the player themselves, you know, yeah. the players on your team have to also echo what they're what the coach is saying or management absolutely we we had a group there in pittsburgh that made you feel good about your role ultimately and and so um coming to the rink was easy uh given everything you could for whatever you had you know whatever minutes they gave you it was easy to do and uh and just be supportive on the bench with the other guys and you know mario would play 28 to 30 minutes a game 
it was a pretty good spot to sit and watch the best player in the world at the time. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was an enjoyable experience for me, and I loved my time there. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to take another quick break from my conversation with Mike Needham to celebrate uh, a peak potential graduate by the name of Bexon Fox. So Bexon was with me uh, in one of my guided missions uh, a couple months ago. He's a U-17 AAA player. He's actually the captain of the Notre Dame Hounds U-17 AAA team of the CSSHL uh, up here in Canada. And uh, he he came aboard, just wanted to, he didn't necessarily have any big problems in his game, but he just wanted to be able to figure some stuff out. He thought he wasn't maybe playing his best hockey. He he wanted to, he want, he has big goals and big dreams and he wanted bigger things for, from himself and from his team. And so he was, he was just wanting to explore what the me- mental side of the game would be. And he was a, fan, a fantastic player to work with really went all in on the program and and I just checked in with him the other the other day in which I do with some of my with some of my clients and some of my graduates so I they always stay part of my team and and I think uh staying in touch and and letting them know that that I do that I am following that I do care I, it, it's fun for for both sides of the equation and I I reached out to Bexon and I I just asked him how he was doing you know and uh, and and where he was at and and he says in a text message I've still been implementing the skills I have learned through uh, I've, I'm sorry, I've still been implementing the skills and it has continued to bring my game to the next level. And my response was, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Where have you seen the biggest improvements? And Bexon replied with, I've been able to stay calm in big situations and be able to reset with myself when I mess up. And it has changed my game completely. Like what fantastic words from a 16 year old hockey player. Um, who feels obviously more empowered now. I can see him smiling through the text message. And uh, and that's the potential of what this four weeks can do. You know, Bexon's been playing hockey at a high level uh, his entire life. And now at 16 years old, 17 years old, he's exposed to things that he hasn't been exposed to before uh, that allow him to step more fully into himself as a player and to get better results and to feel better about himself and his role on that team. And, uh, and that's exactly what, the, what mindset training can do. And that's exactly what the Peak Potential Project can do uh, for you or for your team. So uh, awesome. Uh, glad to hear you're doing great, Bexon, if you're listening. Um, super awesome that, uh, that we're continuing to work together as well. And, uh, and a shout out to all the players that have graduated the Peak Potential Project. And I will be sharing more of their success stories as we go on because it is really awesome to celebrate success of young individuals and young teams who are taking their game to the next level uh, because they're being a little bit of an unconventional in their training. So uh, that's it for now. We'll get back to the episode with Mike Needham. Just remember all things Up My Hockey are at upmyhockey.com. Uh, feel free to reach out to me there. Uh, ask your question, enroll in the next program. Uh, if you're interested in doing something on a grander scale, like a team scenario for next year or an academy or uh, an association level type support, by all means, reach out. Uh, you can also find me, as you know, on uh, social media, on Instagram. Uh, there's the parent group on uh, Facebook, Up My Hockey Facebook group, and my YouTube channel is growing modestly. Uh, I've been posting the, these interviews there as well as some clips from the interviews and some of my trainings. I think we're over 500 subscribers now, so if you are uh, someone who's listening on audio and you uh, goof around on YouTube every now and again, find the YouTube channel, support it, and, uh, and press subscribe and like, and that would be fantastic. Now back to the conversation with Mike Needham. I do want to give you an opportunity to talk about the CSHHL and, and OHA sure. in specific because I know that's, I mean, that is what you're doing now. Um, that's what your job is. And obviously there's, 
there's a lot involved in that. I mean, one, the recruiting of the kids. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you keep them in the system? What does the CSSHL offer that other places don't? Um, what is like? What is your elevator pitch for the CSSHL and maybe OHA in particular? What, what do you think is a, a good reason for kids to go, go play with you? Well, I think first and foremost, um, it's the level of the league. You know, they're, you're playing against the top level kids for the most part um, of that age group. And, and uh, so you're going to get quality games on a consistent basis, you know, playing against high level players. You're always challenged. Um, you know, that being one of the things the league, you know, the league has a lot of good players and, and I know the Western Hockey League draft isn't the end all be all, but about 35 to 40% of the population drafted into the Western League comes from the league, you know, obviously meaning there's some good players there. Um, so every day is a good competitive day uh, as far as the competition goes. Um, you know, across Western Canada now, we, it, we actually, the league expands uh, into Ontario. Um, you know, not you have the East and the West. So there's lots of hockey opportunities in the CSSHL, depending on, you know, what region you live in. So, um, you know, we get to see players from, from Manitoba all the way through the prairies into BC in, in our league. Um, you know, that would be a big part of, you know, sort of the selling feature of the quality of player that you're going to be with on the ice. A lot of like-minded, talented players that come mm -hmm. into OHA but also who you're playing against, you're challenged every day. Yeah. Um, so that, again, just talking about that level, it's, uh, it's you know, a big part of what we do. Is that a, you mentioned there at the end, I mean, I think that that to me, at least as a hockey dad, and, and, uh, and you would know more of it because I don't know all the players that come and, you know, if they're all there on their own account or if some are driven by mom and dad <laughs> that want it more than they do, but you would, you would assume that the players that go there are pretty hockey centric and focused and, you know, and it's a, and it's a big deal to them, which I do believe your environment matters and, you know, being pushed on, on a day-to-day -day basis by those who are around you and maybe seeing that example of, you know, the stories you've already told of some kids shooting pucks after and doing whatever mm -hmm. like that, yeah. that can be contagious in its own right, you know, to see those examples. I know I've had some in pro where until you see the standard that's available, you yeah. I mean, you're not really even sure that it was there for you before. So, I mean, is, is that one of the benefits as well with who you have coming in? Well, absolutely. I mean, having those like-minded kids, like everybody's there generally for the same reasons. They want to get better. And, and that's sort of the beauty of it. Um, you know, you have these kids all together, uh, pushing one another in a positive way, uh, you know, on and off the ice, practicing against elite, you know, it's going to breed better, better play in yourself. And so uh, I think that's a huge part of, of what they get when they come into the program. Uh, the off-ice training, too, you know, when you have kids that are like-minded, that want to get better, they're going to train harder. Um, and, you know, almost through osmosis, you look and go, well, I'm not going to get beat by that guy. That competitive nature is always yeah. brought out. And so um, we really see that. It's like a bunch of alphas, you know, alpha males there and uh, females, too, uh, that, that don't want to get, you know, embarrassed by their peer group and they're going to push hard to be the same. So it is, it's, it's a real good environment for that. And I, and I, and it is a positive environment because uh, you know, they're, they're pushed by their peers. It's not always the coach. And I think that's the thing about, you know, true top level athletes. It's not the coach that always pushes. They have to have that internal drive, but also having peer, a little bit of positive peer pressure makes a huge difference too. Sure. Is there, um, give me an opportunity to speak about o OHA. Like, is there, sure. is there something about OHA that, uh, you know, that you believe makes it special and a little different and, and, and is, and is one of the places to play in the CSHL system? 
I think for for us, it's it's just the support that we put in place. Um, you know, we have a tremendous group of coaches, seven teams, five male, two female, uh, with wonderful coaches. We have assistant coaches for every team. And we have, uh, you know, myself, my role is, is to work and support everybody. Um, you know, a lot of places I don't think would have the same sort of dedicated people to work with the athlete. Uh, I can do all sorts of different personal things, you know, like have the personal touch, watch video with the kid that's having an issue. We take pride in every kid. We don't want to leave anybody, you know, not uh, not developed by the end of the year. So, um, so that I think for us is a big part. Very proud of that. That we have designated people um, and and just looking to to create an environment to help them get better. Um, one other thing that's overlooked too a lot is you know we're the one one of the the few uh, academies that has uh, athletic therapists on staff. Um, so if there's an injury and it's overlooked, it's something that families really don't want to talk about. Uh, yeah, hopefully it never happens to their to their player, but ultimately it does at some point. And yeah. we have uh, people in place to help, you know, nurse them back back to health um, instead of going outside, having to find other doctors and so on. They're right under the one roof. So it's another, you know, it's a small thing, but I think it's an important thing too. Well, that's probably huge, and I'm sure there's a lot of preventative stuff that happens there as well, right? Like not even wait until they get injured, but if you have that person on site, maybe you get that little sore sore muscle strain looked after before it becomes yeah. into something huge, right? Well, the syner the synergy with uh, with our therapy department and our strength and conditioning that goes hand in hand. So you know, periodization of of training, making sure there's rest. I mean, it's a scientific, you know, we take a scientific approach to it and, and our staff is there again, ultimately it's there for the athlete to get better, but we, you know, we work and do things, uh, based on, you know, the best sort of training and best rest and all those types of things that those kids need. Um, and so it is quite scientific too, right. uh, but the synergy that we have between, between sort of, again, on ice, off ice and our athletic therapy department, I think really does set us apart. Awesome. Well, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll ask a couple more questions here, maybe on maybe where I think there's holes in the CSSHL system, uh, or maybe some gaps that they're trying to fix. And maybe they are, I have no idea. I'm just mm -hmm. from an outside observer looking in, but I think it's worth worthy of discussion. Uh, one is the parody. Like it seems like there's sort of a group or like not a, a fairly large group, but that, that are competitive. And then there's also a group that really almost seems like they should have their own league. Like, is that yeah. something that, that you've been looking at or a, as a whole of like, how do we tier this or, or is the way it's, it's happening now, is that just the way it's going to be moving forward? But uh, it does seem like there's some games that are, I mean, geez, 18 to nothing or yeah. 10, 12, one. And, and it seems like maybe there's uh there's not enough, you know, uh, what's the word kind of focus on how do we make this be competitive every night? Well, I think I think that is definitely there is an issue there at times. There are there are some programs that are especially new to the to the CSSHL that are just sort of developing because um, they have expanded fairly rapidly, and and so they need some time. Obviously, to get the talent pool up. But um, but what one of the things that there are uh, one way to address it. We have what what's called a tiered uh, showcase events, and there's a couple of those every year, three or four, uh, three or four every year, and so. Um, what happens with that is basically where you sit within the league uh, standings, you're going to play against teams that are like your, you know, so for example, 10 through 12 might play games and so on. So, yeah. so it, it kind of, in, in that regard, 
we've, we're addressing that very thing that those teams now are playing competitive games against teams that are close to them in the standings. And of course, one through four would play and you're having the top level teams playing all the time. And so that is something that we do address and, and we do have on the radar for sure. Um, and it's just, you know, it's also a little bit of patience before these teams are going to, you know, attract those talented kids and, and get more competitive too. But in the meantime, that's what we're trying to do. Gotcha. Is it a balanced schedule? It's one thing I didn't know. Like, do, do does everyone play the same amount of games against the same uh, same teams? No, it, that isn't. There, there is a bit of a regional flair to it. So, for example, here in uh, in the Okanagan, we're going to see Rink Kelowna a lot. Uh, right. There's just down the road. Also, uh, Yale Academy, which is uh, three and a half hours to to, uh, to Abbotsford and Delta. So that's sort of our four teams in our little sort of, uh, I guess that would be our pool. Yeah. Um, so we'll play them a little bit more uh, weighted towards those teams um, and miss, you know, the St. George's or the Island teams a little bit. And that's where you have your, your sort of, uh, you have a few of your games that are going to be against that pool. And then the weighted as I said, those weighted uh, showcases after that, where you play teams depending on sort of where you sit in the league. Gotcha. And so, yeah, I was just wondering from a just checking out the scoring leaders and stuff, right? Which yeah. I know is super important to these kids. And you know, I mean, yeah. if you're, I, I won't name names, but if you're playing some of the lower teams, right, more often, obviously that yeah. helps, helps the way the stats look for you. Uh, sure, sure, that that one thing, you know, you look at it. Um, I would like to think OHA is in the toughest division in the entire. I mean, we got four great teams that are playing against each other in that little, in, in our little pool, yeah. uh, you know, and, and so we're playing tough games all the time. And uh, we're fortunate in OHA got three of the top six guys in the league and they're playing against the top competition, which is, which is wonderful to see. Yeah. Awesome. Maybe we should give you, I don't know if you want to or not, but I mean, the, the, the Ruck brothers and Mathis Preston, you know, a, a, sure. I, I love talking about teams and I know the team is bigger than just those three of them, but it also is nice to talk about stars sometimes too, because they, 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 all three of them seem to be, you know, well on their way to, to getting a high draft pick this year. Uh, anything you want to add about them? I know they've been kind of stars of your program there this year, the U15 level. Yeah. You know, just all three of them way, way back to, to where we started about the passion for the game. Um, all three are, are just at a, a whole different level, you know, to, they absolutely love playing hockey. Um, the Rock Boys, you know, the twins, they're, uh, they're smiling every time they have their, their stick in hand. And so uh, it's, it's really, really refreshing. These, these kids are there and love doing it um, and have an, a, a level of ability uh, that I have not seen very often come through a program. Like they are legitimate uh, NHL uh, uh, potential stars. I mean, they're that good. And so I say that lightly. I've seen NHL players. I've coached them. Michael Rasmussen, who's playing for the uh, Detroit Red Wings right now, is in, you know he's in the NHL. He played. These guys are are at a different level than him. And so we could have some special kids come through the program. And um, you know, not since we, Connor Bedard is a name that's all over there. All obviously first overall pick projection. We he came through our league. I remember coaching, being on the bench. These kids have qualities like him. So. Pretty special, pretty neat to see, and uh, and to be. I'm fortunate. I got to coach them all last year as first year U15 prep players. Uh, I was the head coach of that team um, to see them firsthand all the time. But now getting on the ice with them, it's just special. These kids are elite, and uh, they're going to have great careers. That's great. Uh, yeah, great words, and nice to see uh, that they 
whatever they fit the bill too of just you know being kids that love the game and 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 good teammates and doing what it takes there That's to help other guys out too. Um, okay, so the the, la- the last thing we'll, I'll end off here is just with the just with the the costs of playing hockey, mm-hmm. right? And and I know that you guys have a have a business and no idea what the balance sheet is. Like you have a lot of people in place, and I know there's mm-hmm. there's expenses there. Uh, but you're also an advocate for the game of hockey, right? Too, and, and I'm just wondering, like, how do you balance the costs? And is there any type of program within OHA or the CHL in general that uh, enables families who maybe can't write the check to be able to uh, play at that level? I mean, if that's where if that's where they would like to go, you know, there's there's scholarship opportunities. Um, OHA, for example, has a uh, has a uh, a fund that we have in place. We have a uh, you know, a group that uh, is raising money to, to, you know, raising funds to allow uh, opportunity for, for less, you know, less fortunate families to come in. Uh, uh, and so we do have the opportunity within OHA uh, based on each individual. Um, you know, on, I'll be very honest, we're, we're battling through COVID and that took a bit of a hit through that time as it, it's done for everybody, no excuses, but it, it has. And so we're building that pool back up. Uh, mm-hmm. Through you know donation, through charity golf tournaments and stuff like that, uh, but yeah, it's available to to families uh, through through OHA and and uh, not to speak for the other programs. I'm sure they have other opportunities as well. But mm-hmm. you know, just knowing what OHA does, if you know if a family uh, needs some financial assistance, we can sometimes uh, do that for them. That'd be awesome. It'd be great too if the league had some type of a you know. Yeah, publicized kind of scenario, right? Would would, would be would be fun. I mean, I, I'm I'm always in the back of my head trying to figure out even the stuff that I do. It's it's not cheap, right? Like I know the cost of stuff involved and the and the, mm-hmm. and the value of time and and I and I hate when I have to say no or, or you know when families have to say no because they can't afford it. I mean, it actually it kind of hurts me, right? And it's like, well, how do we how do we make this more accessible? So I'm sure those are those are questions that you guys are are trying to figure out too because the accessibility does matter. Um, but to your point, I guess for everyone listening too, you know, you said thirty to forty percent of the of the draft uh, is CSHHL players, which is a huge fraction. But that still also means you're sixty percent coming from other places. Yeah, you know, absolutely. like yeah. so th- there is a place to play. Mind you, there's 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 no really affordable option. Even AAA is getting <laughs> really expensive now. You know, but yeah. uh, I mean, every dollar does matter. And again, just to the families out there, you know, you don't you don't have to end up, you know, there's not one spot that you have to be. Um, if you are able to, to get to the CHL and that makes sense for your family, then by all means, there's lots of good programs and OHA definitely being one of them. So um, I guess maybe we'll just leave it there. You I mean, it's uh, it, it's been 90 minutes and I really appreciate yeah. your time. Awesome stories that you have uh, on a personal level. And I think that we kind of covered all the, all the factors that, uh, that we could cover. And, and I'm sure the, I'm sure my listeners enjoyed it. So thanks so much for being here, Mike. Oh, you're very welcome. I appreciate uh, you uh, asking me to come. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being here and listening to the entire conversation with Mr. Mike Needham. Uh, You are a faithful listener, and I appreciate your time and attention. Uh, And I believe that Mike was worthy of that time and attention. Uh, Lots of cool stuff there. Uh, I really, really like the one that sticks out to me is, is for sure the story of him being a first-year pro, leading the exhibition season in scoring for his team, yet can't make the lineup for a month, does not get to play a game, a meaningful game for a month. That's tough sledding. 
that's tough for anybody. And that's tough, especially in the day and age where no one was telling you why or why not. Uh, mind you, he did ta say that his assistant coach is one of the people he's most th thankful for to keep him guided and, and through it and, and took him under his wing. And um, I just I just reflect on uh, uh, the parents of minor hockey league uh, players, right, that are going through whatever it is they may be going through. Maybe they're getting passed over on the power play or they're not getting a chance to penalty kill or maybe they never start a start a period or a game. And, uh, and there are these things that just, you know, kind of aggregate, aggravate people. And then the, the player maybe starts to recognize and starts to question. And, and then there's all these questions about, you know, what can I do or what should we do? Should we remove him from the team or should I talk to the coach or should I, should I, should I? And the one thing that I always say is don't ever allow your player to feel victimized. Do your absolute best to feel like they are in some type of control of the situation, no matter how severe you perceive it to be or not to be. Uh, the player can't feel like a victim. Then they get down on themselves. Then they feel like there's no hope. Then they feel like there's no fun. Uh, so find a way to make it a challenge. And that's what happened with, with, um, with Mike. You know, His coach ended up making it a challenge for him. He ended up explaining things to him in a way that made sense to Mike, that he could align his work ethic and his habits and his, his off-ice uh, dedication and commitment to get him to the spot that he needed to get to when his name was called so when he did get a chance to go on the lineup that he could flourish. And, uh, and instead of staying sorry for himself, instead of saying, oh, all the first rounders get all the chances, oh, this place isn't the organization for me, this, this coach hates me, all the, all the mental, negative mental self-talk that he would have every right in the world to say, like, that's the thing that we have to remember here. He would have had the right. It would have been fair for him to say that. It wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't getting what he deserved at that point saying those things wouldn't have got him anywhere saying those things wouldn't have helped him and that's the one thing that i try to align my players with is aligning as often as we can our words thoughts and actions with our hopes and dreams with our goals and dreams and when we can do that more consistently we can keep our own best interest at the forefront of what we are trying to do there's no time for victimhood there's no time to play the blame game. We're too busy getting better. We're too busy finding a solution to our problem. We're too busy looking for an opportunity in the adversity. And if you can do that at home in whatever capacity you are at, if you can help your player find the opportunity and the solution in whatever the issue is, you are developing resiliency for them and you are empowering them to make better choices to make decisions that they feel they are in control of. And when you have an empowered player, you have a confident player and that confidence will grow and that confidence will build. So thank you so much for being here today. Uh, I really appreciate you spending time uh, with us on your daily driver commute or whatever it is you're doing and uh, more good stuff to come. So until next time, you know what to do. Play hard and keep your head up. <laughs>